The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merritt, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York here on WGBB. We're in Merrick, Long Island, New York. I am Bill Donahue. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night. It's the 18th day of September 2022. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is with us as always and right across the way. I'm happy to welcome you aboard tonight. Very glad you can be with us. we got some great stuff in store for you tonight. Up first, we'll speak to the former skipper of the New York Mets. He took the Mets to the World Series in 2015. Terry Collins will join us. And in the second half, we'll welcome in the former special teams coach of the New York Jets, Mike Westhoff. He's got a new book out titled, Figure It Out. So sit back, relax, get comfortable. Enjoy this edition of Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. Some great sports talk, some great people up ahead, some great memories also. Social media. We're out there on Facebook. Check it out. Give us a look. You can give us a like. We are on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. You can follow me on Twitter at B Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry because they're all cataloged out on the website. You can listen to them whenever you want. Well, our first guest, he's managed the Houston Astros, the Anaheim Angels, and of course the New York Mets. He had his longest tenure as a manager of the Mets. He led them to their first playoff appearance in nine years in 2015, which of course resulted in a trip to the 2015 World Series, the Mets' first pennant since back in 2000. Currently serves as a baseball analyst for Mets programming on SNY. It's a real honor and a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight, Terry Collins. Terry, good evening. Good evening, Bill. How are you? Just wonderful. It's great to have you aboard, Terry. My pleasure to be on the show. And I want to ask you uh, first off about your college career at Eastern Michigan University. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now, you were a shortstop and uh, quite a base stealer. Well, I, well, I mean, you know, I had some, uh, you know, as well break down our tools. The one thing I could do was run. And so, you know, when I was a freshman, uh, I actually went to Eastern Michigan as a second baseman. And then uh, the second baseman on the varsity got hurt for the first game. So they brought me up on the, from the freshman team. And uh, I had a pretty good day. And so two days later, we were playing the University of Michigan. And the coach said, can you play shortstop? And I said, sure. So I ended up playing shortstop the next four years at Eastern. So uh, you know, just really lucky and picked out the right place. And, you know, we, we had some great success. We, we won the NAI national championship in 70 and, uh, really was a, really we had a lot of fun. Yes, you did. Uh, had a great career in college. You were drafted by the Pirates. You also played in the Dodgers organization. You managed the uh, great Albuquerque Dukes, the AAA affiliate of the Dodgers. Any influence, Terry, uh, on your career from that great Dodgers organization, the way the, the way they uh, operate out there? Well, Bill, I will tell you, it, it's totally influenced by it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it, they were the, they were the great or, greatest organization, obviously back then and um they're you know still great today but you know the o'malley family they treated everybody you know extra special we did 
we had things in spring training that other teams didn't even dream about having. We had Christmas time. We had parties for the alumni. Uh, you know, Walter and Peter never forgot the past. And, and to this day, there are, you know, several former Dodgers that still live in Vero Beach, Florida, where they had spring training. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I grew up a Dodger and, you know, my, my experiences as I learned the game, I would sit in the back room at night and listen to Koufax and Drysdale and, and Johnny Padres and, you know, Wes Parker, Maury Wills and, you know, Roy Campanella. So, you know, th- that experience at that time taught me about professional baseball and, and certainly helped my coaching career along the way. Definitely, that's true. Now, the Houston Astros, you, you started off there, Terry. I had read where Joe Morgan had some comments to say uh, about you and your time with Houston. Uh, I don't agree with everything I've ever heard Joe Morgan say. What did you make about his comments? Well, I'm not sure what he said, but, uh, you know, we, we had, a, when I got to Houston in 94, we had, you know, they had um, actually had a very, very good young team, and then, um, you know, in 94, the strike hit and just absolutely, you know, really killed our season. Jeff Bagwell was the most valuable player in 94 and mm-hmm. in, the, in the National League, had a tremendous year. You know, Craig Vigil had a big year and we were really on, on we were playing our best baseball when the strike hit. So, uh, the next year we made a huge trade with the San Diego Padres, big eight man, eight player trade where we lost Caminiti and we lost, uh, Andrew Harcedeno and Steve Finley and, uh, Brian Williams, we lost some really, really good players. We got some good players back, you know, don't get me wrong, but that was a tough time for, for the Houston Astros because we certainly were on the verge of having a, you know, really a great run there. We're speaking to Terry Collins tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, you came to the Mets in 2011, uh, Terry, of course, and you wore number 10 in honor of Jim Leland, who you coached for with the Pirates. Describe the impact that Jimmy had on your managerial style and if there were any others along the way uh, that influenced you. Well, there were several, Bill. I mean, I had, you know, again, I grew up, you know, in the Dodgers, so I got to be around Walt Alston. You know, oh after Walt yeah. uh, retired, he would go through the minor leagues and talk to us minor league managers about different situations and things during the game. And of course, you know, I had a, uh, my relationship with Tom Lasorda at the time. You know, it got better and better as, as time went along. And, you know, after I became the farm director in Los Angeles, Tom and I became very, very good friends. And he actually taught me a lot in the later years about what it was like to manage in the big leagues, how to manage in the big leagues. But Jim Leland had the most influ- influence on me. You know, I spent a lot, five years with in the pirate organization, and, and two of them on Jim's staff. Where you know we were together a lot, and I mean a lot. It was you know plane rides and car rides, and I lived in Pittsburgh in the wintertime, so we got together in the wintertime and you know talked baseball. And I, I I give Jim the credit for me getting the job in in Houston. You know, he taught me about interviews and what to say and what to expect, and really prepared me very very well for the interviews and. You know, um, so, you know, he's, he's been my mentor all along the way. As you say, a guy, a guy who, who deserved respect, who commanded respect, and also deserves, uh, serious consideration for Cooperstown. No doubt. No doubt. You're absolutely right. Now, uh, when he retired, Jimmy Leland, I'm referring to you, that left you as the oldest skipper in the majors. Now, I look at that, Terry, as a badge of honor. Yeah, me too. I mean, yeah. you know, 
you know, we, you know, it's, it, there are only 30 of those jobs, Bill, and they're hard to get and they're hard to keep. You know, you've got to be lucky. You've got to have good players. You've got to have a good organization. And I was really lucky here in New York. You know, I had, you know, Sandy did a great job of, you know, rearranging our roster and changing it and making it so that, you know, we could sustain some, you know, some success here. And, and even after 2015, even though we made a lot of moves and we lost some free agent guys, you know, we still brought in some guys that got us to the playoffs in 2016. And 2017, we couldn't help it. You know, things happened where injuries just ravaged our pitching staff and some of the players on our in our lineup, and we couldn't bounce back from it. Right. And that'll happen. That'll happen, Terry, that's for sure. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Johan Santana no-hitter, Terry. How agonizing uh, was it in the dugout, the decision to leave him in the ball game? Well... You know, as you've read, Bill, and as I will tell you, it was very, very hard. I, yeah. I knew, I knew, you know, Johan coming off the surgery, uh, was tough for him. And I, I also knew his importance to the ball club and the organization and who he was and his stature and the contract and all the other things involved. But you know what? I also respect the game enough and I respected Johan enough. It, you know, if it would have been early in the season where, you know, he wasn't lengthened out to where he could throw 115, 20 pitches. I probably would have never let it happen. But, you know, it was it was later on to where I thought, you know, he was certainly now. I didn't expect him to throw 134 pitches. But, you know, but it got to that point in the seventh inning when, you know, I, I just said, look, this guy deserves this. He deserves this opportunity uh, to try to finish this game. And, and he obviously, due to his tremendous competitive, competitiveness and, and how he pitched, you know, he got he got the no hitter, and I'm, uh, you know, it's going to go down as one of my great moments in the game. It sure will, Terry. And uh, did you have a sense of history at all, uh, thinking about the Mets franchise and how long it, it they had to wait for for a no hitter uh, in in the history of the ball club? Did that enter into your decision at all, Terry? You know, you know, Bill. I, I, I said this. Before. I didn't know they didn't have a no hitter. Ah, okay. Until the, game, until the game was over, I had no idea. I mean, you're, we're we're talking some of the greatest pitchers in the history of the game, right? Seaver and Boozman and you know Doc and and Cone and all. I mean, my gosh, all my Matlock and you know just one after another. So I thought for sure they had to have had a no hitter in there. I mean, even if it was you know Rick Reed or or uh, Bobby Jones or somebody else. You know, I figured somebody had to have had pitched a no-hitter. So when the game was over and I heard it was the first one, I was very surprised. Yeah, it's it's not easy, Terry, being a Met fan, as as you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They've been killing me for 60 years, Terry, and, and uh, it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon, but uh, hopefully this year uh, things bode a little bit better. We're speaking with Terry Collins tonight on the program. Now, one controversial moment that, that we had, Terry was speaking about Matt Harvey's de- depression. Talk a little bit about the decision to to speak about that openly. Well, um, I, I will tell you, Bill. You know, Matt had a tough time. There was a there was a time in his career. I mean, this guy was the most dominant pitcher at, at one time that I you know guys anybody in the anybody in the league, and you know the opponent the opposing teams. I mean, I, I remember a time he pitched against the Phillies, his first game against the Phillies, and, and uh, Josh Toley was catching it. And Chase Sutley got in the batter's box, and he looked at Josh. He says, well, I want to see what this wall talks about. <laughs> and he struck 
he struck Chase out, and, he, and Chase looked at Ty, er, Josh, and he said, "Okay, I get it." <laughs> I mean, this guy was yeah. this guy was special, and there was a time when, due to his, you know, I, I really don't know where it came from, but you know, all of a sudden, uh, maybe it was injuries or something else, but he started to lose kind of confidence in himself, and all of a sudden, depression started to set in, and and I felt very very bad for him. We certainly tried to get him help as best we could. Um, but you know, you can't help somebody who doesn't want to be helped. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we, we certainly put, uh, Matt in, you know, in, in the right hands and he just never was able to come back. And I really, really truly believe that thoracic outlet syndrome surgery that he had really curtailed the rest of his, you know, cause he just lost his arm speed after that and, you know, was never the same guy. No, that that was a real shame, Terry. You're right. Now, one of the great stories in 2015 has to be Daniel Murphy's playoff run uh, and, and the way he came through for the ball club in, in the postseason. How can you account for that, Terry, that, that all of a sudden Daniel starts uh, turning into Babe Ruth here? Yeah, and I will tell you, I, you know, there's a time in our game you got to give credit where credit's due, and the credit mm-hmm. goes to our hitting coach coaches kevin long and pat wrestler you know uh, kevin that they did that's where analytics were first starting to come out you know guys were starting to really document information that we didn't have for years and kevin and pat had, had, had found some information that when dan murphy hit the ball in the air his production was like off the charts and they said dan you've got to get the ball out you got to look i mean they showed him the numbers they said look you know, not just RBIs, but hits and extra base hits. And they said, you know, we, we got to get the ball off the ground. And Dan, being as good a hitter as he is, could do it. You know, and they said, we're going to change your swing a little bit. We're going to, you know, put a little bit more launch angle involved with it and get the ball off the ground. And that's where he went. And that's exactly what happened. And though it was up to those two guys and Dan, you know, you got to make adjustments as a hitter. You know, Dan could have said, Hey, look, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. But these, they convinced him to make some changes, and obviously in the playoffs, uh, he was in absolutely incredible. And I, I, you know, I'll tell you, Bill, if we didn't have five days off between the game when we swept the Cubs and we got to the World Series, Dan Murphy would have put some 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 records to rest uh, yeah. in playoff in playoff baseball. That's right, Terry. That that was a tremendous run by Daniel Murphy. Now, we spoke about the, one of the high points of the of the postseason in 15. We'll talk about one of the low points and that's the Chase Utley sliding into Ruben Tejada. And uh that led to uh the next season Noah Syndergaard throwing at Chase Utley, and people were telling me, you have to ask Terry about Tom Hallian, you know? So, <laughs> so to, to me, to, to me, Terry, I believe that it just depicts, uh, your conversation with Tom, real life game conditions and, and actual on-field occurrences. I, I don't see anything, uh, unusual about it. Well, you know, Billy, right. I, unfortunately, I didn't know he was Mike at the time. So, right. uh, you know, that, that's where I was taken back from it. But, you know, the situation was, you know, in, in, in the history of the game, for years and years and years, when something happened that, that like what happened to Ruben Tejada in, in the playoff game, you know, where somebody makes an ugly, bad, illegal slide, breaks a guy's leg. And I, to be honest, you look back and it's probably almost ruined Tahada's career. He just never mm-hmm. recovered from it. Right. You know, the leg injury. Just lost speed. He lost that first step quickness. And so 
back then, years ago, and I've had some of the great umpires, John McSherry and, uh, you know, Don Denker, tell me, hey, look, when something happens in a game where you know that you're going to, you're going to, you know, make a stance here, you can, you have one time to do it. You got, and then they used to come to me and they said, okay, you go one shot to, re, you know, get some revenge here and then we're, then we're going to stop it. And so when, you know, we never faced Utley after he broke Todd his leg, he never played another inning in the playoff game. And so 2016 was the first time we got to see him and Noah, you know, and I don't, and again, I'd like to, you know, I, I, I talked to Noah when the game was there. Why he didn't hit him in the middle of the back or something, I don't know. Throwing a hundred, that'll left a real mark. But, yeah. you know, the throwing behind him. But the point was we had a young umpire back there who must have known about the situation that might be coming and to eject him for, you know, walk out and, and you know, just make a statement and, and warn us. You know, warn both clubs. Because, you know, I, Chase Utley is a smart, he's a very, very smart player. He knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. He knew he was going to get thrown at. And so... You know, to have that kind of a thing happen. But, you know, Tom, when he, Tom Hallion, when he got involved, I wasn't mad at Tom Hallion. I've known Tom Hallion for 30 years. I wasn't yelling at Tom Hallion. I was mad about we didn't get the chance to get Chase Utley. That was my, that was my argument about the whole thing. So, you know, and it just obviously, you know, after it, after it got out and and leaked, got leaked out somehow, uh, it became a, you know, uh, one of those things that gets on the internet and you can't get it off in time to, to, to stop it, but uh, I certainly, you know, I, I know myself well enough that had I known he was Mike, I certainly wouldn't have said some of the things I said <laughs> during that argument. No, well, it's an internet classic, as as you say, Terry, and and uh, it will remain so. But uh, you were just sticking up for the boys. That's all you were doing, and uh, I, I could see how uh, revenge would have been sweet against Utley, because uh, as a fan, uh, it, it was really ugly, very very yes, ugly. Yes, it was <laughs> for sure. Now we recently, Terry, had Old Timers Day at the ballpark for the the first time in many years. Jay Horowitz, tremendous job uh, organizing the event. Give me your impressions of the day. Well, you know, and I and I will tell you, Bill, you know, I wasn't, you know, like the Dodgers. You know, I I, I spent twenty years with the Dodgers. Here, mm-hmm. I came to the New York Mets, and I was became the field coordinator, and then got to spend seven years as their manager. But their history is so entrenched in this town. I mean, to this day, I can't. I don't walk down the street where people don't stop me and talk about Matt Harvey, that Matt Harvey game or the Johan Santana game. And so that passion of, that that fan base has showed back when we had the old-timers game. And those players came here, and they came from everywhere. Obviously, you know, the one that stands out as of today is John Stearns. Right. You know, he, to, to his willingness and his desire to come back and see his old teammates, and he was on some very, very good Mets teams, but to sit there and, and to be able to talk with Cleon Jones and, you know, even Doc. And, you know, I, I've known Mike Piazza since the day he signed with the Dodgers. So and to see all those guys in one space having so much fun, trying to, you know, just let the fans recapture all those memories that those guys, you know, have created here in New York was very, very, very special. And, and to be able to be a part of it, you know, was to me, you know, I'm just a kid from a small town in Michigan and, and to be sitting here on the biggest stage in all of baseball with some of the greatest, greatest players in the history of the game was really an honor. 
The fans, as you say, Terry, were hungry for something like this because, as you say, the fan base is so passionate about the New York Mets and, and their history, and they really deserved it, and uh, hopefully we can do it again, if not next year, the year after, and keep the tradition going because it really was a wonderful day. Well, there was a lot of guys. You know, I, I talked to Jay several times, Bill, and, and he told me about when this got, when this got wings, you know, Mets guys from everywhere, from all all the different teams, want to know if they could come, if they could come. And it just shows you the passion that's in this organization that's, that they've created. You know, you can say whatever you want about, you know, all the heartache that the Mets have had all these years and all the – you know what? It's still baseball, and in New York City, baseball rules. And, right. and you know, when you got the Yankees and the Mets, and, 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 and the same with the players. I mean, they look at it exactly the same way, and that's why – you know, I've done interviews about the free or the, the subway series. Let me tell you something. That's playoff baseball. That's playoff baseball in New York City. Mm-hmm. So don't don't think for one second the players don't get fired up about it. And, and it's a little different game when you do those games. But it's all because of the tremendous passion the fans have here in New York. Very true. Terry Collins with us tonight on the program. Now. Terry, what are some of the differences between this year's team and the Mets of the last few seasons? Uh, we know about the obvious ones. G- give us a few examples of what makes this team stand out over the last couple of years and the kind of malaise that had set over this ball club. Well, again, I, I you know, I'm not going to point the finger at anybody, certainly, but you know, Steve Cohen's done a tremendous job. He's come in and he's infused money in here where they brought in some quality major league guys and so you have depth now throughout you know the lineup and throughout the you know your pitching staff you just don't have jake that you you know you're hey you're, we're going to turn to jake right now well you've got max and you know they went out and got chris bassett who is a big who's been a big find you know taiwan walker's been a good carlos carrasco's pitched well mm-hmm. but the bench you know you look down the bench now and you've got major league baseball you know got i mean uh veteran major league guys who you're not afraid to put in certain situations. And the depth has changed everything, and that allows Pete, Pete Alonzo and some of the other guys to, hey, look, it's, it's just do your job. And I think the addition of Buck Showalter was a huge, huge move by the Mets. By, you know, he has told, told those guys, hey, we're going to play the game right. And I said this, you know, even on my, the, when I did the radio, they're fun to watch. I love watching them. You know why? Because they play the game the way we were all taught to play it. They run balls out. They move runners along. It's not about just sitting back and trying to hit the ball over the fence. They use the field to hit. They play very good defense. And, and, and I give Buck the credit for instilling that kind of uh, mentality in the players. Instant credibility uh, happened when Buck came aboard, Terry. That That's definitely true. But, you know, Bill, you got to buy into it. Yeah. I mean, the players have to buy into it. You know, you look at what Francisco Lindor did last year. I thought... I thought they put a lot of pressure on, on Francisco by bringing him in and giving him that huge contract and saying, okay, you're now the leader here. Hey, he's never been to New York where he's had to play every day. He's never been in the clubhouse with the likes of Jake DeGrom, who, by the way, it was the star here. And, you know, and mm-hmm. so, you know, they put him in a tough situation instead of saying, hey, look, just go play shortstop and, and play really, really good. And then along the way, if you have those kind of skills, it'll take over. And that's what I, you know, that was the thing I did with David Wright. I, when I asked David Wright if he would be the captain, he didn't want to be the captain. But I, and I said, look, David, I'm not looking for speeches. I'm looking for guys that lead by example. Mm-hmm. 
and no one, no one approaches the game better than you. No one respects the game better than you. And when the other guys on this team see how you go about things, it's going to change. It's going to change the format here and the culture. And he, and he did it. And, and so I think that's what, that's what's happened this year. I think they've changed the culture here and guys have just gone out and played their game. Wonderful points, Terry. That's exactly true. Now, let's talk about in the last few minutes we have, Terry, the big rule changes coming up in 2023. We have the bigger bases. We have the banning of the shift, the pitch clock. What is your impression of some of these uh, new institutions coming into the game? Well, we'll start with the pitch clock. And, you know, I've seen enough minor league games to see where, you know what, it does move the game along. But, you know, it's got to be enforced and it's got to, and, and by the way, more guys that have gone through the minor leagues that have used it all, this should be easy for them. You know, some of the veteran guys who haven't had to do it, even, I'm not even sure, you know, like when they're down on rehab, if they have to obey by that, like if Max goes and pitches in Syracuse, if he has to do, you know, do the 15 second thing. I'm not sure that's even applied to them, ah, but I yeah. know that, I know that it's going to change the game a little bit. I think bigger bases, the one place has got to be a bigger base is first base. Because, you know, Bill, you're, you're taught about that running lane, uh, which cost the Mets the game the other night, by the way. But, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you've got to run in that running lane and the base is inside the running lane. So you actually have to come out of that running lane to, to touch the base. And I've seen so many guys get injured by trying to hit the side of the base. So they're afraid the ball is going to hit them. They're going to be called out and have, and be injured. I've always said that base has got to go into foul territory a little, foul territory a little bit. So that, you know, unless the umpires, we got instant replay, they can see a ball go over that base if they want. You know, as far as the shifts goes, look, you know, I will tell you, I, I wasn't the guy to do the first shift. You know, I know they shifted on Ted Williams many, many, many years ago. But when I was managing in Anaheim, Joe Madden was my bench coach and he came in one day and he said, Terry, I've done some in- investigation and Ken Griffey Jr. has never hit a ground ball in his major league career on the left side of uh, second base. So why would we play anybody over there on the infield? So we shifted on them. It's a strategic ploy. And you know what? These guys were all brought, taught to hit the ball the other way, you know, against the shifts. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, the next night, Ken Griffey tried to bunt against us, against the shift. We, you know, he popped it up, but, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you, these guys are good enough. They can make adjustments. I don't like changing the strategy of the game. I don't like it. I didn't like when they brought a relief pitcher in who has to face three guys, Jerry Blevins, won a lot of games for us by getting the toughest left-hander in that opposing lineup out on, you know, one out, I can't, four or five days a week. And so some of the rule changes they're trying to do to speed the game up, I think goes against the, the strategy of the game, and that's what's one of the things about baseball that's fun. Now, uh, the Mets can clinch uh, a postseason berth by winning tomorrow night in Milwaukee, Terry. What do you uh, see looking ahead uh, in the remain, I think we have about 14, 15 games left. What kind of a ride are we in for? Well, you know, I think, you know, when as they start to get near the end and they still have that one game lead over Atlanta, obviously I still think, Bill, right now, you know, those three games in Atlanta are going to decide who wins this division. Uh, but, cause I, but I think the Mets are going to go in there. Obviously, the Brewers are fighting for their life. So they're going to be keyed up for this game against the, the Mets, and and I and I think anytime you go play a team that's put, that's good, you raise your game. And I think when the Mets have their A game going, they can beat anybody. 
Hopefully that's true, Terry. We're going to be looking forward to that. Terry Collins, it's been an honor and a real pleasure to have you on the show tonight. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us out here on Long Island. Uh, we appreciate it, Terry, and we wish you all the best on SNY. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me on. All the best. That's Terry Collins, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll welcome in former special teams coach for the New York Jets, Mike Westhoff. Stick around, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB, located in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island. Hope everyone is having a wonderful weekend. Gorgeous late summer weather here in New York uh, this weekend. The baseball season, uh, I don't like to see it drawing to a close, but it is. I Myself, I only have one more game at City Field this season. But what a day for my teams. The Mets win, sweep the Buccos while still staying one game ahead of the Atlanta Braves and the Jets. How about the Jets? They pull one out against the Cleveland Browns, their first win of the season. Miraculous. What can happen next? I mean, my luck has got to, I'll probably get hit by a bus on the way home tonight, Brian. What do you think? No? All right. <laughs> I'll be careful. We'll speak about that great Jets win with our next guest. He's a former special teams coach in the National Football League. Previously, he coached for a number of teams, most notably, of course, the New York Jets and the Miami Dolphins. He is considered to be among the greatest special teams coaches in league history. He has a new book out. You should read this book, folks. Very good read. Figure it out. My 32-year journey while revolutionizing pro football special teams. It's great to welcome to the show tonight Mike Westhoff. Mike, good evening. <laughs> good evening. Thank you. Thank you. Happy, glad to be here. Glad to have you aboard, Mike. Now, I want to ask you straight away, how did you like the Jets game today, especially the performance of the special teams? Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I, actually, I'm up here in New York. I was on uh, Staten Island. Oh, right, today. yeah, you were on Staten yeah. Island signing some books, right, yeah. I did, a, I did a book signing, and they had a Jet uh, a Jet fan club there, and they were they were very excited. It was a lot of fun. And a very good football game. I mean, a good game. The Jets fought, you know, they fought the whole time. I, I was, you know, everything wasn't perfect, but there were a lot of good things that they should be pretty well pleased with. And, um, and it ended up being a good game. Yeah. The, the kicking game for the Jets was very, very instrumental. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, early on when they were, 
kind of trying to get in the game. They ran the fake punt on them, which was a very well-executed play. Obviously, a punter did a great job throwing the ball. And then, of course, at the end, when they recovered the onside kick, uh, which is very, very difficult. You know, the statistics of recovery in these last several years have gone dramatically to the receiving team. Uh, so uh, I've gone dramatically to the uh, to, to, to the um, uh, uh, the, the kicking team, excuse me, it's very difficult to get it. And so for the Jets to come up and pull that off, wow, it was pretty cool. It was pretty exciting. Very, Definitely. very well done. Very good, Mike. Yes, it was. Now, before we go any further, I want to let you folks know, uh, if you missed today on Staten Island, Mike will be doing a couple of other events. He'll be in Levittown here on the island on Friday, October 7th. He's doing a combined event with Marty Lyons. Um, more on that on his social media page this week on, on Twitter, on Facebook. He'll be in Mayopac, New York on October 8th at the Mayopac Inn in support of the uh, United Troop for, for the troops. And then again at the Jets game on October 9th with the Gotham City crew at their tailgate. So there's an opportunity to meet Mike, say hi, get a book, have him sign it for you. And as, as I said, it's a tremendous read. Now, uh, as I said, all, all this will be on his social media pages this week. So check that out, folks. I'll, I'll uh, reread that uh, before we uh, sign off tonight. Now, the, the book, Mike, I want to get right to the book. I'm, I'm enjoying it immensely. Uh, you pull no punches and you, you don't sugarcoat anything, do you, Mike? <laughs> no, not too much. No, it's not. It's not you know, the, the purpose is to tell a story. Right. I'm not a telling tale, and I'm not interested in, you know, I, I, there's much more that's complimentary than there is derogatory. Uh-huh. But nonetheless, you know, it's just what I mean. I'm, I'm very critical of myself for things that I did right or wrong. But uh, I'm very proud of it. I think it's a good story, and it comes along at an interesting time that I was fortunate enough uh, and it was very happenstance. I, I didn't, I didn't expect to do it. I was a, a line, an offensive line coach. I coached linebackers in college. I was coaching with the, uh, Baltimore Colts. I coached tight ends. And all of a sudden, you know, we were going to fire our special teams coach. And I told Frank Cush, I said, don't fire him. I'll take it over. Well, I never, I didn't, I didn't know even what it was. I never coached any of it. But what I learned in a hurry is that there was very little innovation or creativity. There was none. It was zero in 1982. But also, there was no there was no regulation. You pretty much do whatever you wanted. So I did, and and all of a sudden it transformed from just a kind of a, a, a kind of a non plausible part of the game to a very intricate and part that really controlled a lot of football for a while. So I helped. I think I did more than help, but I'll be kind. Uh, <laughs> I helped direct it to the very top, higher than it had ever been. And now, with all the regulations that have come along, it's it's kind of diluted back. It'll never get back to that point. It'll never get there. It's just different now. It doesn't mean it's better or worse. I, I think it's worse, frankly, but it's still just different. So it was a lot of fun for me to be involved in that part of the game at that time. I was very fortunate. Well, like we said, uh the book is a great read, and Mike has a great story to tell, and he tells it in, in this book, Figure It Out. You also talk, Mike, about being a cancer survivor, and I, I want you to let the folks in, uh, in, in on uh, what you've been through and, and uh, the long odds, really, that you've beaten to come back and walk again. Yeah, it was great. You know, all of a sudden, I'm 40 years old, 
I'm coaching with the Miami Dolphins. We're very good. You know, I'm with Don Shula and Dan Marino. and We're a really good team. I'm extremely healthy. I was in great shape. And all of a sudden, I've got this sore leg, and it ends up being bone cancer, osteogenic sarcoma, oh, which is very, very, very difficult, especially back then. The survival rate was only about 20%. And, and I underwent a very radical surgery called an allograft, which they removed the tumor and most of my femur, replaced that with a donor bone and plated it together, and I went through chemotherapy. I mean, I, I did all the things that, that the major cancer patients have to go through. I was fortunate with the great support from my family and the tremendous medical care that I was able to receive, and a lot of that ended up being back here in New York, you know, where I was at Sloan Kettering and went through that, and that was just tremendous. So um, it was a very difficult time. It dramatically affected me as a person in my life, but certainly it affected my career. And I was very much, I think, on track to, to be a head coach in the National Football League. And, well, there, the people aren't quite as reticent to, to look at you in a particular way when you're hobbling around with a cane. But uh, I was able to do my job, I think, exceptionally well. And... Um, I didn't do anything any more heroic than what people go through every single day. Uh, and it's kind of a day-to-day thing you have to deal with. I had uh, 10 major surgeries on my leg. They've all been over five hours. So <laughs> I know wow. there's something about major surgery. Yeah. Uh, my entire left leg is metal. There's, there's only bone down below the knee. Uh, everything else is metal. Uh, it's a miracle. The guy at Sloan Kettering, Dr. John Healy, uh, did mine. He's in that profession. Believe me when I'm telling you this. He's first, and nobody's second. I mean, he's the boss, and he is really talented. And what he actually created saved me. It saved my leg, and it probably saved my life. Um, so I, I was a, just a res, uh, recipient of some incredible care, and I fought through it. I just fought through it. I, I figured it out. That's what I did, and um, and that has something to do with the book. So. I'm proud of what I was able to do, but I'm more proud of the care and the treatment that I received. And I'm extremely grateful for all the people that were involved uh, in, in getting me through that. And I worked through it the whole time. I worked through the whole time. I missed very little time. And yeah. so I was uh, kind of a crazy. So I, I added that to my story because, you know, you've got a story about guys that kind of came out of nowhere. You know, they, Leon Washington. That, that nobody knew about. You know, nobody knew who Leon was. And, you know, the Larry Izzo's or the uh, Kenyatta Wrights or the Brad Smiths that really no one knew that came into the National Football League and changed the game. I mean, we changed the game. Roger Goodell is quoted on that on my book cover that he said that about what we did. And, and it really did. It changed the game in the National Football League. And and I'm, so here's a story about those kind of guys, the, imp, the impact that they made. And then, and I'm right in the middle directing traffic. Uh, right. A guy out of nowhere that's, that's fighting cancer as he's doing it. It's a pretty cool story, and it's got a great ending to it. Other than the fact that I didn't get the Super Bowl, which makes me sick. But other than that, <laughs> um, I'm very, very proud of the story and how we did the book. Because you're not only hearing me tell it, but uh, we interviewed quite a number of, of people for it. And, and I did not edit one word of their interview. So it's exactly how you're hearing me tell it. And then you can hear Leon Washington tell it, or Sean Payton when I was with the Saints. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really cool way to write a book 
I'm extremely proud of it. So thank you for being so kind about it. No worries, Mike. Mike Westoff's with us tonight on the program. Plenty of laughs, plenty of uh, really eyebrow-raising comments from Mike, but uh, as we just spoke about, inspirational lessons shared by, by Mike about his, uh, his journey, as, as he puts it on the cover of the book. Now talk a little bit, Mike, about your, your humble beginnings growing up in, in the Pittsburgh area. Yeah, I was, well, I talked about that a little bit. You know, I grew up in a, a family of six, we were a large family. Uh, my dad was a tremendous athlete. He had all the athletic talent. Uh, I took after my mother as kind of this cute little Irish girl. I wish I had dad's <laughs> talent. <laughs> he was, you know, but Dan, Dan Marino broke, broke my father's city of Pittsburgh high school past throwing records. Dan Marino's the guy, only guy that ever broke them. My dad held those. Nice. And so I grew up in that kind of family. I, we lived in a city, kind of a row house. Um, it was rough. When I was a kid, you know, I, I, I fought a lot. Um, it was just a tough neighborhood. And that's uh, why, you know, I, I, I hung out. Well, the area, if you, if you, if you drove your car into where I grew up, you, you turn around and get the hell out of there. <laughs> it was tough, if you did that today, it was a tough neighborhood. And so I grew up that way. And then we moved out to the suburb. I knew football would be a, a way for me. It was the only way I was young. Uh, when I went to, to school, I, my parents started me a year behind you know, ahead where I should have been, uh, and that made it tough. So I was kind of always the underdog, but I figured it out. I figured out how to do it. I got a scholarship. I went to college. I played football. I'm proud of that. I talked about it. There's tremendous stories there. I mean, my going to college wasn't like most people. It was, aside from the fact that I went from Pittsburgh to Wyoming, and I took a 36-hour ride on a bus and got off the bus and practiced, so yeah. most, most college kids don't do that. No. But these are things that I experienced. And so, and it helped me. I think it helped me develop into a coach. I went to graduate school at Indiana University. I got a master's degree in education, emphasis in psychology. I worked for Lee Corso. And I told a lot of those stories and how I met, you know, Woody Hayes and Bear Bryant and Bob Knight and the influences that they had on my life and my life as a coach. And then, of course, my time that I worked at Don Shula. And then, and then my time in New York, which was really probably, uh, the best, some of the best years of my life. I absolutely loved it when I was here. I loved it. I, I loved a lot about it. You know, I, all the experiences even went 9-11 and what, what I, what I experienced there. Um, and a lot of people, I don't think know it. I don't think they know what the New York Jets did for the National Football League at 9-11. Read my book and you'll find out because i tell you exactly what happened. Yeah, and, some, and so some I'm great proud stories. Of those things. And mm-hmm. it's a cool story of a kid that just kind of came out of nowhere. I did not have, you know, like some of the guys that have gotten head coaching jobs today or done real well, you know, their fathers walked them in. I didn't have that happen. That didn't happen to me. You know, I, I didn't sit in front of a computer and do analytics. Uh, I, I, I busted my tail to get in. And, you know, not that they didn't. I don't mean it that way at all, but it was different. It was a different time. And so I like the way that it worked for me. And uh, and I like how it ended up. And it's a cool story. And then I took guys out of nowhere. You know, I'm the only coach that went out to Texas Tech to work out Zach Thomas. Read about that. He'll go in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. You know, guys like that. And so that's what I'm so much, so proud of. And then what we were able to do, like when I, my years here at the New York Jets, in my first 10 years, now I didn't have Devin Hester, but I had nine, nine guys that led the National Football League in returns. No one's going to break that record. They're never touching it. 
because there's no returns anymore. No, right. <laughs> don't have any. Baltimore ran one back for a touchdown against Miami, and uh, it'll be snowing before that happens again. Uh, it just doesn't happen in the league today. And we did it all the time. And I know that what we did, took. I was in the playoffs 60% of the time when I was in New York. And I know it put us in the playoffs. I don't care what anyone says. I'll argue that. I mean, I get you know accused of being a little bit arrogant or whatever, but I'm just being honest because that's what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, we we were we were a contributing factor that helped make a difference, and I'm extremely proud of that. And I was glad that I, I had that uh, opportunity to do it. And then what those guys did and how we contributed, oh come on, it's the greatest. It was so much fun. I loved the time that I was up here. I loved it. It was one of the best times of my life. So I was happy to write about it, and I'm proud to have written about it. Tremendous book, as we said. Figure it out from Mike Westoff. You uh, mentioned Lee Corso, Mike, but you also chronicle such people as the great Woody Hayes, Bear Bryant, and, of course, Don Shula. They really helped shape your approach on the field, didn't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. I can't tell you all the stories, so I'll give it away. No, I mean, yeah, we I don't want to give away the story here. I, no. was a young, I mean, I was a young coach at Indiana. I was a graduate assistant, went to school, and helping coach. And we had a coach that had been at Indiana for a long time. He was kind of a legend, a man named Howard Brown, and he died. And, of course, Lee came up to me one day, gave me the keys to his brand-new car, said, Mike, you got to get up to Indianapolis. Woody Hayes is coming over for the funeral and the services. So I drove up and picked him up. And for two days, I was with Woody Hayes pretty much by myself. I took him everywhere. And I really got – we talked and talked and talked. And I, I just, I just sucked it all in. I enjoyed it. And as we were leaving, he was talk. We were talking about conditioning, because he mentioned to me that that I had kind of believed in it. And I said, "Yes, sir." And he said, "You know, it looks like you lift some weights." And I said, "Yes, I try." And he said, "Just, I want you to remember something." He said, "I never saw a weightlifter." Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. He said, "I never saw a football player that was a weightlifter." So I never saw. Oh, no, weightlifters aren't football players. He said, "But I know football players that get better." By lifting weights. Mm-hmm. He said, I want you to remember something. Don't ever let a number make up your mind who's going to be a football player. He said, make sure you, you, you look at all the intangibles and watch how he plays. He said, being a weightlifter is not being a football player. So when I went out to Texas Tech, Zach, Zach Thomas was 5'10 and a half and he weighed 223 pounds. I lied on every report that I turned in because I wasn't going to lose him. And we drafted him, and he's going in the Hall of Fame. Right. I got it from Rudy Hayes. I did not let a number make up my mind. I made up my mind by watching a guy, how he played the game. And that's what I did for, I can't even tell you how many guys, including Taysom Hill down with the New Orleans Saints right now. And he never played a snap till I went down there. So I figured that one out too. And that's, that's what I love, to find those kind of guys and then watch them contribute and not only be an intricate part, but help change the game in the National Football League. Now it's it's been it's changed back a little bit. You know, people ask me to go back, and I tell them what the hell you think I'm going to do. Everything I did is illegal now. <laughs> I'm not allowed <laughs> yeah. to do it anymore. Right. But it was fun when I did it. God bless it. It was fun when we did it. And I used to love, you know, when people would come in to play the Jets and that group that I had. They didn't want to play us because we were really tough. I mean, we would knock your head off when <laughs> we're tough. And I loved it. And it was just, and, and when you read the book, they're going to tell you how they felt. Not just me. Listen to what they had to say. 
And I think that's a, that's an incredible, uh, uh, incredible thing that I was a part of. And I got a lot of it from the people I was exposed to. Um, Bear Bryant, that's a story I can't tell that because that's so, that's crazy, but it's true. And of course, Don Shula, Bob Knight, uh, Al Davis, Raiders, he offered me a number of jobs and I didn't want to go, but I loved talking to him. I thought it was really cool. I loved him. He was a brilliant man. And so those are great experiences that I was fortunate enough to be a part of. Now, you talk about, Mike, your all-star special teamers. We spoke about Leon Washington, <laughs> Larry Izzo, of course, Zach Thomas, Kenyatta Wright. You also call out some of your least favorite guys in the book. We won't give away any names, but um, you you come right out and say you couldn't stand the guy because he was the stupidest guy I was ever around. That's great. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just how I felt. Yeah. I mean, and the thing that I did when I was here, I won't talk about his name. When right. I was here, I covered, I covered for him. I never, I never publicly criticized him. I never said one word to the media. I never did that. Um, I, I absolutely did not. I was very, I, as a matter of fact, I stood in front of the media and I lied. Cause I told him a thing that he did. I said, no, we did it. I, I totally lied. I covered for him. But as soon as I had a chance, I cut his sorry ass. So that's just how I felt. Cause I couldn't stand him. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and, and I knew he would, I knew in the big game he would he would cough it up and he would he just I, I thought he was a choker and I was right. Now he went on later and he did some pretty good things, but not not around us. So um, I don't know. I just like I like tough good guys. I don't like BS, and so I have a hard time with that. And so yeah, there were a couple of people that you know I, I don't know. We don't like everybody didn't like me. And so I'm allowed to not like somebody. Yeah, it's probably right. <laughs> right. And uh, as as the book's title, the book title uh, says, folks, figure it out. You could figure out who the guys uh, who who were uh, in uh, on the uh, shit list for uh, for Mike. Uh, most of them, most of them were the greatest, and, and I loved them, and I had a ball. And they and they have a good a great respect for me. And to this day. Most of them were we're still very close, and I able to talk. I've got all kind of guys playing and coaching in the league, so that's really pretty cool. You know, I, I have somebody's teasing me; they see me wearing I, these shirts all the time, and, and I said, "Well, they, all these guys coach for me, so I make them send me shirts, so I wear them all the time." Yeah, I, I've got Ram shirts, I've got Seattle shirts, I've got Colts shirts, I've got Jet shirts, I've got Dolphins, I've got them all. So it's a lot of fun for me. Doesn't so, hurt. So. Doesn't hurt. Mike Westoff with us tonight. Talk quickly about uh, Tim Tebow, Mike, and how, how that really blew up in the Jets' faces. Yeah, it did. I was, I was, I received a phone call from Rex about Tim Tebow. Said they were thinking of doing it, and he said, uh, "I said, well, first of all, how are you going to use him?" And he said, "Well, we're going to use him as a multi kind of talented guy. You know, he can do a number of things. Kind of a wildcat quarterback. You know, try to try to really you know move him around, different things like that." I see, he said, will you use them? I said, yes, I, I absolutely will. I'll have them on my punt team as a personal protector. I said, and we'll become a real fake threat. Well, I lived up to my end of the bargain, and I'm the only one that did. Because I did use them, and he did a good job for me. Do I think he's a, a, an NFL quarterback? I do not. I don't. Mm-hmm. I think it was, and that was a, a misnomer, and that set us back. I mean, don't 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 think that just because Mike Westall. I mean, Bill Belichick said the same thing. He tried to make him a quarterback. It didn't work. They won't look at me. I'm I'm just echoing what some other. And I just didn't believe in him as a QB. 
But as a multi-talented guy to do different things, yes, I like them a lot. So when I talked about sometimes that the Tim Tebow thing was mishandled and, and in some ways a disgrace, it was not a reflection of Tim. It was not. It's a reflection of how what we did with him. Mm-hmm. Not me. I kept my end of the bargain. I'll show you some plays that we ran that were fakes as good as anybody's ever run. But I'm the only one that did it. He never, they never even used him. But, you know, I always thought he'd be the wildcat guy and, you know, put him in a little bit. He could catch the ball. You know, you utilize him a little bit. Right. We didn't do it. And so in that regard, I think we drastically failed. Um, and it hurt us a little bit. You know, I mean, I can't imagine that Mark Sanchez would have been affected because all you got to do is practice against Tim Tebow. And if you don't think you're a better quarterback, then you're just, you, you don't get it. <laughs> Mark was a better quarterback. He absolutely was. Mm-hmm. Could have Tim helped us in a particular role? Yes, he would have. But we didn't hold, we didn't uphold our end of the bargain. Only me. Understood. I did. And I, and I, and I, and I, and I, it, it, it was for the most part a positive result for me. Was he a great special teams player? No, he was not. He's not. But in a particular role, he was good. Only in a particular role. Very interesting answer, Mike. Definitely. Now, uh, you did your job pretty much better than anyone else, and you you chronicle it six hundred and fifty seven times. That's exactly yes. what you did, correct? Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, six hundred fifty seven games. And yeah, that's a lot of games. That's a lot. That's a lot of Sundays. That was pretty that cool. Is. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. It was so much fun. I love the NFL. I have the deepest respect for the business. I believe it's the most physical game played and, and, and by far the most cerebral game played. I mean, I'm a big baseball fan. I love baseball. I, I was listening to you. You were talking about baseball. So, you know, if you get traded from, from the Mets to the Yankees, you're third baseman, you go to the Yankees and you're going to play third base and you, you probably bat about, uh, you probably bat 285 and you're going to be fifth in the lineup. And okay. So then the manager comes to you and says, Hey, if I touch my hat, steal second base. Okay. Now you get traded from the Jets to the Giants. You get an eight inch notebook and you got to learn. It's, it's a different ball game. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And no disrespect because I love baseball, but I'm going to tell you football is a cerebral game. I mean, what the, what we have to learn and what's taught and what's presented on a daily basis in a national football league, like no other business. There's none. Nobody compares. So I'm a big, big fan of the way they do business and the game itself. I think it's the greatest. And, and I was, you know, I'm, I'm extremely proud that I was part of it. Uh, you know, part, they look at what I did. When I was doing it, we had so many variables. Every week, I gave out an 80 page scouting report game plan depth chart. 80 pages. Wow. I'll show yeah. you something. <laughs> I went my ass off. This was, this was pretty, pretty cool what we did. And so, I don't know, it's like, it's like even like I've said in the book a thousand times, I was the luckiest guy in the world. You were. And, uh, it's chronicled, folks. It's called Figure It Out. My 32 year journey while revolutionizing pro football's special teams. Mike Westoff. Again, let me read, uh, to you folks where he will be appearing. He'll be in Levittown 
out here on Friday, October 7th. He's doing an event with Marty Lyons on the 8th. The next day, he's in Mayapack at the Mayapack Inn supporting United for the Troops. And then he's at the Jet Game on October 9th with the Gotham City crew at their tailgate. Go say hi to Mike. Grab a book. He'll sign it for you. And uh, details on all these events will be on his social media page this week. Well, Mike, thanks for One taking thing real quick. Go ahead. Real quick. Go ahead, Mike. You yeah. Can, you, can get it, you can get it anywhere online at Barnes & Noble online or Amazon online. Just go to Amazon, put in, you know, figure it out. Mike Westoff, you'll deliver it right to your house or through the uh, publisher, Mascot Publishing. So you're able to get it very easily. You know, I wish I were a bigger publisher we could put you know 20 copies in every barnes and noble well we can't do that so mm-hmm. you know i have to do it they have to do it online a lot of it i've sold very well we've done well because i think people enjoy it if you don't like it get a hold of me i'll give your money back if you really like it come to fort myers i'll take you shark fishing with me beautiful well, how, do, how do you like oh. that folks you can't beat that now mike thanks for taking time out of your sunday night to spend it with us up here in new york well you're here in new york so enjoy your stay I really appreciate you asking me. Thank you very, very much. No worries, Mike. You take care, and uh, we'll we'll see you in Levittown. Okay, I hope so. Please, come by. Thank you. That's Mike Westoff, folks. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Terry Collins and Mike Westoff, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us. See you next week, September 25th. My guests will be authors Kevin Keating and Gary Kaschek along with Ali Cepeda, the son of the great Orlando Cepeda, with some more great sports talk. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.